Welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, a podcast to help you get an insider's view of the financial world and escape common investment traps. We look at the financial news of the day and help you make sense of it so you can relax about money. And here's your host, Paul Winkler. And a welcome to the Investor Coaching Show, Paul Winkler. Talking money and investing, retirement planning topics. Yes, yeah, so when planning for that period in time when you are going to be not necessarily working for money, but money is working for you, lots of planning goes into that. But a little bit of understanding about investments and investment choices and you know if you're thinking about at that point in the future you want companies you know if you're owning stocks you want companies in your portfolio people working for those companies and they're working on your behalf to deliver income and earnings and returns to you that's kind of the idea behind it and how do you choose those types of funds well, there are a lot of different strategies that people use to choose investments, and sometimes people try to vote with their conscience when they invest. And uh, you know, there was a, something that came across in the email, and I thought I would just address it. It was this this particular product being you know, talked about. It was a kind of like a, for lack of a better term, a biblical ETF. Uh, something that was investing in exchange traded fund. You got to like mutual funds and they're traded daily and you have a, tra a daily ending value as of 4 p.m. Eastern time. And they calculate the value of all the holdings, all the stocks that are held in the portfolio and go, okay, the share price uh, of this particular fund is X, whatever, $40 a share. And how many units do you own? How many shares do you own of it? And that, that's your account value. Well, then you have ETFs that are traded throughout the day, and that value fluctuates throughout the entire day. And then what happens is, you know, if you want to buy it at nine or you know nine o'clock in the morning and then sell it at one one p.m. afternoon, you can do that. Uh, so that ETFs they're becoming a popular choice. I don't use them in every asset category personally, simply because of lack of. Uh, funds that I really like in those categories, but that's starting to change little by little. You know, I, I find there are areas that can be added. And, uh, you know, there are very, very strict criteria that I'm looking for. You know, what are they doing with securities lending revenue? Uh, what are the asset holdings? You know, what are the price to book of the funds that are being held? What are the uh, market cap of the particular stocks are, that are being held? Uh, so I'm looking for very specific criteria. And if there's something in that area, there can be tax advantages, uh, expense advantages as well. Uh, you also have to look at how much they're traded, you know, making sure that you're not ending up with something where there are some issues possibly with the arbitrage that takes place inside of these funds. Complicated stuff, I'm not going to get into it too much, but it was in general this question about this particular uh, fund and the idea, hey, can I vote with my conscience? Can I buy a fund that lines up with my beliefs and my values? Now, this has been done quite a bit in a lot of different areas. You know, we had ESG that we forever people were talking about. It's not being talked about so much anymore. You know, environmental social governance, uh, ESG. And, are, and you know, what happened is they 
pretty much with the returns and how poorly these things did, people stopped talking about them. But it was gimmicky. Now, it was this idea, hey, this aligns when I'm environmentally conscious and I want to own something that is uh, focused on that. Or, you know, maybe that there are social concerns that I have and, and I want to own things that line up with that. Or maybe governance, how the portfolio is run and, and who's managing the portfolio and so on and so forth. But, you know, what happened is returns at the end of the day came in and people are looking at these things going, this is terrible. This is awful. Uh, but, you know, what, then, then there was this push to have the Department of Labor allow these in 401ks. And then the big argument was, well, these the returns aren't so good. Is this really in people's best interest? Because if you work for a company, they're supposed to choose investment vehicles that are there and are being managed to your best interest. Well, what's your best interest? Well, for a lot of people, you're going to say my best interest is to make sure that I've got returns. <laughs> That'll carry me through retirement. That's what's in my best interest. Uh, you know that I have something that is likely to give me the income that I need throughout my the entirety of my retirement, or when I'm accumulating money. Because if I miss out on returns, I I may be living off of my kids, or I may be living off a of charity, I might be living off of the government, or whatever. If I'm not, and so it's not in my best interest to have lower returns. You know, so hence what happened is the Department of Labor says, hey, you know, we got to make sure that employers are keeping people's best interest first when choosing investment vehicles for their employees. And then what happened is ESG came around. They says, you know what, uh, we'll make an ex exception for this. You can have ESG and, you know, we can do that even though historically the returns are lower. We're going to say that the best interest of the employee has been served when you have these funds in there because for a while it was like no we're not going to let we're not this it's not going to pass the test but what ended up happening is then it ended up passing the test very controversial very controversial and then you have this thing about biblical now this has been around for quite a while you know christian-based funds and those types of things uh, I, I've known people that that was their entire marketing strategy. That's all we do are conscious, religiously conscious mutual funds. And I never jumped on that bandwagon. And there are a lot of reasons I never jumped on that bandwagon. Number one, when I looked at the very biggest fund companies out there that were marketing themselves as religiously conscious, I often saw a lot of active management, a lot of stock picking and market timing. And you, know, you would see, you'd look at the turnover inside the funds, how often they turned over. And I would see 100%, 120%, you know, higher turnover rates. And then I would say to the person that was asking me about the fund, do you think that gambling is a great idea? <laughs> and they'd be like, no, it's not, you know, that's not necessarily what I think is a good idea. And then we would talk about the turnover rate and it's you're literally gambling by selling this set of stocks and buying this set of companies and there are two ways of looking at it you could look at it as gambling in that way because what we know is through the research that when people are trying to pick stocks what happens is they end up hurting returns there was one study of pension plans that when they engaged in market timing 100 percent of the time they reduced returns when they engaged in it and it's because 
what you're believing is that the stock is mispriced. I'm selling this company because I think it's too high and I'm going to buy this company because I think it's lower than what it should be. And I'm going to make money by selling the thing that's too high and then buying the thing that's too low. And then when that goes up, I'll sell that because it's gotten up to fair value and that's how we make money. And when you look at it that way, you're making the assumption that that mispricing is there and that you're smarter than everybody else. Now, that can, I think about it, that can actually go against biblical principles too, is, you know, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to. <laughs> if you believe you see a mispricing that nobody else in the world does, it's kind of, it's kind of egotistical if you think about it. You know, so that's that. And then you look at the turnover and buying and selling. And the other way of looking at that is this. If you're buying and selling companies, are companies all of a sudden very religiously conscious one minute and then they're not the next? I mean, you know, is it like people move in and out of being good? You know, that's a good, good company, bad company. Oh, now they become a bad company. We got to get rid of them. And they're going to buy the new good company. But then that company becomes bad at some point, And then you get rid of that. Well, who owned it when it became a bad company? If that is indeed the case, you did because it was in your fund. So that's another way of looking at this turnover. It doesn't make any sense. Now, if you look at the one that was that was being, I'm not gonna even mention the ticker name of the fund, but I'll just mention some statistics and make the point that I was making. It had 61% turnover in the past year, number one. Uh, if you look at the companies, 25% of them were tech companies. And you could say, hey, those tech companies, could they be helping uh, pass information along that might be objectionable. You know, could they be used a con as a conduit to pass along objectionable information? Well, yeah, they're tech companies. Technology is used all the time for nefarious purposes, right? Uh, you know, if we look at what the management style of the fund is, you know, what are they trying to do in the fund? And I actually read the Morningstar analysis of the fund in question. And they said, number one, fees are a big weakness. They're able to charge a lot of money, way more for this particular fund than other ETFs. So number one, you're paying a lot more. Well, because they're screening for those religiously conscious stocks, right? That's so we, we ought to be able to charge more would be their argument, right? But that's a high hurdle to clear. And what happens is when you have a lot of buying and selling, you have a lot of additional trading expenses that are actually being kicked up. And then, but that's not even part of the management fee. You have the management fee, and then you have the high trading costs on top of that. And once you get through a lot of those extra expenses, you go, man, just kind of capturing returns of the market is going to be incredibly hard. Then the other thing that they did here is they said that they the portfolio strategy showed that it had quote unquote, maintained a substantial overweight position in momentum exposure and quality exposure compared to category peers. In English, what we're talking about here is that they're trying to focus on quality of company. Well, when you buy higher quality companies, those tend to be companies that have higher prices compared to earnings. Okay, so that's one thing. You look at that, you go, I'm, I'm buying higher quality company. If I'm buying something that is a higher price compared to earnings, that decreases earnings yield. So another return issue, right? The other thing is momentum. 
the idea of momentum is an object in motion tends to stay in motion. So if a stock is going up in value, in fact, I'll just read the way they put it in here. Momentum exposure is attributed to holding stocks currently on a winning streak and selling those that are on a downtrend. What is the golden rule of investing? Buy low, sell high. What are you doing? You're buying something that's on an upward trend. Now, that is a good way to break a rule of investing, number one, doing that. But the other thing is, is this. Momentum can be a valuable strategy when you are looking at it as a way of reducing cost of the portfolio. Because if I'm looking at different stocks and I'm going, I've got these things that are an upward, you know, there's an upward momentum. There has been research that shows that you can reduce the trading costs when you buy in that particular manner and you, you know, sell in that particular manner. But using it to increase the return of the portfolio has not been shown something that is actually valuable because of the cost of employing the strategy. You know, so what happens is you have trading costs when you're buying, and if you try to look at it as a way of increasing the return, it doesn't work. But as a way of reducing costs, yeah, it does work to reduce costs. Um, it has to do with the way you're, you're holding a portfolio because you, you hold it and then you don't wait for it to go to a downward trend before you sell it. You're just, you're just buying it on that upward trend and that reduces the trading costs on the front end. But once you hold it, you're not selling it on the back end, if that makes any sense. Uh, but the research on it is interesting, you know, and that is the only time I've ever gone, yeah, okay, I can see using it in, in that particular instance. If you're using it, just try to reduce expenses. But for a return as a return, return tool, which is basically what they're saying here, we're using it as a way to increase returns. It is not shown as being a good way of managing money. Uh, you know, so you got a really high expense ratio. You got a lot of technology stocks in the portfolio, 25% of the portfolio in technology stocks, a high buy and sell, small number of holdings. I mean, you only have like 100 holdings in the portfolio. And you look at that and go, wow, what, are, what rule of investing is that breaking? Diversification. So you end up in that situation where you hold a portfolio and maybe it aligns with what you think you want to have as a person, what you believe that you should be doing. But then what ends up happening is likely because of expenses, because of turnover, and because you're, you're buying companies who have high prices compared to earnings, lower earnings yield, you end up with a lot of negatives in all of this. So I, you know, I've, I've never been a big fan of this. You know, he's saying, I'm just going to buy companies that I believe are, you know, good companies. And I just say, well, you know what? All have sinned and fall short. Uh, you're not going to avoid bad behavior. I don't care what you own, who you own. And then you're trading stocks one for another. You're saying that this company's good, this company's bad. And then you're going to sell this one and buy this one over here because this one's gone bad. There, I mean, I think I laid out a number of, of different reasons. And I think that's pretty clear why I'm not a big fan of this particular strategy and why I don't ever, uh, this is not something I have ever used as a criteria for choosing investments for a portfolio. Uh, broad diversification, you know, capture market returns, keep expenses low. If you want to do good things with your money, you know, do the most you possibly can to increase your returns and make sure that you keep your risks down so that you're able to do good things with your money, with your own money, and you make the choices as to what is good 
and not good or what aligns with your with, with your belief system and what does not align with your belief system. You know, that would be the better way of going, in my humble opinion. Thanks for tuning in to the Investor Coaching Podcast. Now, you may be one of these people that's been listening and realizing, wow, investing, there's a lot more to it than meets the eye and financial planning, tax laws constantly changing and recognizing that maybe you might need some help in this area, but you don't want just anybody to help you out. So we have 10 offices in the Middle Tennessee area and everything we do is fee only. We align our interests with your interests. So you can get an initial 15-minute phone call with any one of our offices just by going to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. That's it. Every one of the offices is run by somebody with 20 plus years experience. They're all degree planners. They all have academic backgrounds in investing and you can get the help that you need. So if you want to set up a complimentary phone consultation, just go to paulwinkler.com forward slash call. And we look forward to seeing you soon. All right, I'm back here. You know, so when you're planning for retirement, a strategy that is often used is thinking, hey, you know what? We don't need to live in necessarily as big of a house as we raise the kids in, let's say if that's the case. Uh, maybe we'll downsize in retirement and then move to a smaller house and then go off into the, the sunset with less, uh, you know, as far as responsibilities, less to upkeep. Uh, maybe the house we sell, it'll be a really high price house and then we can buy a much smaller house and you know that'd be kind of nice right and then you have a bunch of extra money you know that equity or the amount of money or the value that the first house was greater than the second house that we can use as an investment to help us retire well there was an article in the wall street journal this week and it was talking about how downsizing your home for retirement isn't the money move that it used to be uh, and it was saying that uh, downsizing from a big house to a smaller dwelling is a rite of passage for retirees hoping to simplify their lives and shore up their nest eggs. But it might no longer result in savings in today's housing market. And they were saying what's, what's in essence happening right here is this. People trading the smaller home, you know, it was, you could have lower upkeep costs because the place is smaller, maybe a smaller heating bill, air conditioning bill, maybe you got a smaller yard, it's less to upkeep in that particular way. Uh, and maybe it's a much smaller square footage. Uh, so there, therefore, you know, you're not paying, typically you're going to pay a, a price per square, per square foot. Uh, so it was, you know, that was a way to eliminate some maintenance tasks as you age. And, but what happened is that now we have this situation where mortgage rates are going up. Now, you may not have a mortgage. It may not be, you know, I'm not going to have a mortgage on the next place. But that affects the amount of inventory out there is really what they're saying here. Which, you know, true. If you look at it, when you have higher mortgage rates, what people do when they buy houses is they will typically look at what their mortgage payment is going to be compared to their income. And, you know, sometimes you'll hear rules of thumb, like don't have your mortgage payment be any more than like 30% of your income. Uh, you know, sometimes, you know, 20% is, is thrown around, you know, so the lower it is, the more manageable it is because you just never know 
when Murphy's going to show up at the doorstep and something's going to go wrong. And you, you really wish you didn't have a mortgage payment that was that high of a percentage of your income. So you look at that and you go, well, I've got to be able to qualify for the mortgage too. Now, because you know, when you go to the bank, they're going to go, hey, what's your income? What's your income history? Uh, and they're going to be looking at what you're going to qualify for. And then you can come back and, you know, especially if you're going and getting pre-qualified, they say, here's how much you can go qualify for. Go forth and look for a new home. And you'll look based on what you can qualify for. Well, as interest rates go up, what happens, that payment obviously goes up. Because the way your payment is calculated, let's say if it's a 30-year mortgage, they're going to take the value of the mortgage, how much money you're borrowing, times the interest rate. So let's say that that amount you're borrowing is 200000 and the interest rate is 7%. You know, so that's $14,000 of interest. Well, that will be what you're paying in that year roughly. And then you'll have a little bit more that you're paying than that because it will be calculated. The amortization will be done such that as you pay a little bit more. So let's say you pay that $14,000 in interest and then you put another, you know, $4,000, let's say, in $4,000 in paying down the principal. Well, the next year, your mortgage amount won't be $200,000. It'll be $196,000, let's say. And then the interest will be calculated at $196,000. And then you'll have a little bit more going toward the principal. And as time goes on, more and more and more goes to the principal. And then what happens is at some point in the future, the principal amount is zero and your mortgage is done. You know, so what happens, as you'll hear people say, is when you have a really long mortgage, a lot of interest is paid and not that much principal. And that's why sometimes people try to shorten the, the mortgage to 15 years. Problem is you run into, that you can run into, and, and the thing to think about regarding that is the more extra that you pay toward the house, the more you're investing in real estate. Because if I want to get the money back out, I've got to either refinance the house or I have to sell it. And it may be in a disability that you might end up with that situation where that happens. So sometimes when people will look at mortgages, I might actually say, maybe have the longer mortgage, but pay the same amount that you would have paid with a 15-year mortgage. You know, so sometimes that can be a strategy to have a higher payment, but only if you have enough money in savings because it's not as liquid. You have got to sell the house or refinance to get the equity back out. And I really want to make sure primarily that I have a really good cash position, you know, from a standpoint of emergency fund, you know, you, sometimes you'll say three to six months, you'll hear that one year worth of spending in savings. It's not unusual to hear that when you're younger, you know, it might be even a struggle to get the three months worth of spending in savings. But you know, what happens if people put so much extra money toward their mortgage to try to pay it off early, and then they have that emergency, they're disabled, they're, you know, something breaks or they have to replace a roof or whatever. Getting the money back out of the house isn't so easy. They may go, well, I'll just get a HELOC. And you go, well, yeah, they're callable loans. You know, and you can end up in a situation where the bank calls the loan on you. A lot of people have gotten in trouble with that. So it gets a little bit complicated. But the thing that I'm talking about here is maybe if you're in a good, substantially uh, solid cash position, retirement funds are, are 
well-funded and all of that, then maybe you can start making extra payments toward mortgages. And, you know, it really depends. I, I don't like to get into too much of a specific here because that in a financial planning context is when we actually have those types of conversations being very specific as how, how much extra. But the point here is that when you have interest rates going up, what happens is most people don't have a lot of money to put down on a house when they first buy it. So what's happening is there is an increasing demand as interest rates increase for those lower priced or lower size homes, 750 to 1750 square foot. So what's happening since there's only a limited supply and there's more demand for those as interest rates go up because of how high their mortgage payment is going to be, Naturally, what happens is prices go up, supply limited, demand getting greater, and prices go up. So what happens, you have this high price house here that you're selling, and you have the lower price houses going up in value, and the differential between them is reducing or it's shrinking. You don't get as big of a bang for the buck when you sell the high price home because there isn't as much demand for those things, but you're buying something where there's greater demand. And what happens is that leads to less in an equity benefit of selling the high price home and actually downsizing. And it's, you know, until those inventories catch up with the demand for these properties, that is what they're saying here is likely to be the case continuing going forward. So hence, what do you do? This is it. You know, it, it may be delaying retirement. Some people may be doing that. Some people may be just going, hey, you know what? I'm young enough. I probably should just make sure I save more uh, just because I never know if when I retire, that same thing will start to happen. Just recognizing that there could be these little, little things that creep up that are unexpected that cause one of your retirement plans, like selling a big house and buying a smaller one, to make up the difference in your loss or, or your lack of retirement savings may not be a strategy that works out in every instance. And this is a good example of a period in history where that strategy is not as beneficial as it used to be. Hey, this is Paul Winkler. Hope you enjoyed today's edition of the Investor Coaching Show. If you wanna learn more about what we do, go to our website, paulwinkler.com. You can watch some of the videos there, and if you're not already a client, you can set up a free initial consultation. Until next time, I'm Paul Winkler, reminding you that I believe that more educated investors are more confident investors, and confident investors are more successful investors. Have a great one. Advisory services offered through Paul Winkler, Inc., an SEC-registered investment advisor. The opinions voiced and information provided in this material are for general informational purposes only and not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine what investments are appropriate for you, please consult with a financial advisor. Paul Winkler, Inc. does not provide tax or legal advice. Please consult your tax or legal advisor regarding your particular situation.